Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I, I'm good. You know, I, I reviewed this show, uh, you know, getting getting set up, doing my research, wanted to be prepared for you because I know you always do your work, and I always want to do mine. So I went down to a local junkyard. <laughs> just try, just try. <laughs> I I tried to put myself in the right frame of mind. So I was walking around. I got a junkyard that's about 11 miles from my house, and it's out on about 40 acres. And I just walked around early this morning with a cup of coffee, smelling the rusted metal, twisted tin, and all the you know old mashed up vehicles, just to put myself in the right frame of mind. So I'm ready for you. I guess we should tell everybody we're covering bash at the beach, 1999. And there is a junkyard invitational match. That's real. Uh, we're gonna is, that a, is that a square peg in a round hole or what bash at the beach in a freaking junkyard? I don't get it. Well, if you don't get it, how do we, uh, let's go <laughs> ahead and let's go ahead and jump right into it. Why don't we bash at the beach? 99 went down on July 11th, of course, in 1999 at the national car rental center in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, believe it or not, it drew a good house here. We talk about WCW in 99, almost in a, in a sad, depressed state, but that wasn't necessarily the case here. 11,397 fans. They're going to pay a really good gate, 444,000 and change. There's another $71,000 coming in on merch. Uh, total folks in the building, 13,624 fans. And we're coming off the great American bash, uh, pay-per-view, which we just recently did a show on the summer of 99, you know, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but the summer of 99, Eric Bischoff is burnout and, and some of the creative in WCW is probably suffering from burnout as well. Fair to say? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it really is evident here, you know, and I, I was thinking about this as I was prepping for the show and trying to anticipate some of your questions. But, you know, it was so um, profoundly clear in watching this show that there was just no real direction. And, and I'll say before we get into it, I know we'll break it down, you know, match by match as we always do. And I look forward to that. But, you know, from a you know, a macro view or, you know, a wide angle view, if you will, it just, you could tell that there was just no direction. You know, it was just, it, it was just like a collage of stuff. And, you know, there was, it just didn't have a feel, you know, I, I it's almost, you know, I was watching this, I'm going, okay, well, if this would have been a nitro, you know, yeah, it would have been a pretty decent episode of nitro. But in terms of it really delivering that special pay-per-view feel and that one moment that you you you, you realize you're only going to get these kind of moments on a pay-per-view, and that's what a pay-per-view should do. It should give you that one or two or three, you know, just really unique special moments. And this one didn't deliver any of that. Everything just felt, and none of it was horrible. I guess you know some some of some of the matches were better than others. Of course, they always are. But none of them were, none of them stood out either. It's, they were just all okay in, in their own respects. So it was just, yeah, it was really evident that creative was just all over the map and there was no real creative direction or vision. One of the things that uh, we should talk about is, is what's happening with the viewership of Nitro. You sort of compared this show to a Nitro and we'll look at say 98 versus 99 98 is peak WCW 
and 99 we're on a little bit of a decline we're not quite yet to the 2000 level but this is eric's uh sort of the end of the line i guess before we talk about the numbers specifically what was the i mean if you had if you had to give an elevator pitch to an advertiser how would you describe wcw's demo and we've talked about i guess we should explain we're about to go in the weeds here a little bit but Whenever someone's selling media or they're trying to sell you advertising, they'll always find a way to frame it. Oh, we're number one in our demo. Now, you know, how granular you get on that can become sort of nonsensical. Oh, we're number one in the demo, which is 54 year old cat ladies who live at home and rent and drive a Toyota. Uh, but usually it's men, 1824 men, 2554 women, 2554. What's, what was the target demo? that WCW served the best men, 2554 for sure. And even at this time, and you know, we talk about how WCW really began to deteriorate after 1998 and it did, you know, no, no doubt, you know, and it's something it started gradually, you know, it, it started as a gradual slip by this point, July 11th, 1999, we were in a free for all. In fact, two months after this pay-per-view almost to the day, um, I got, you know, I got sent home basically fired sent home is a very nice way to say it sure but i got fired on september 10th 1999 you know just about two months after this pay-per-view so th- that should tell you something and and again put that in context as you just said you know we drew whatever it was 11,000 paid 13,000 people in the building a 400,000 dollar gate uh $70,000 in merch you know those are numbers that just about anybody today would go wow well, that wasn't a bad weekend tickled you know and and yet I got fired two months later, so it again just to kind of put this era in in perspective. But in terms of demo, um, the demo, the audience, we really didn't start losing the audience. We lost it in volume. You know, obviously our ratings weren't as high as they had been in '96, '97, '98, but the core demo remained pretty consistent. There was just less of them. So instead of having, you know, two and a half million, I'm picking numbers out of, you know, the air here. I don't know what they were, but instead of having two and a half million viewers, you know, between the eight men, between the ages of 25 and 54, you know, we may have had 1.7 million. So the, the, the numbers as a gross number were definitely deteriorating, but the demo was holding up pretty steady. And let's explain, you know, why that matters, because. You know, there are certain demos that advertising agencies, because most of the advertising that's happening on television is coming through an agency. They covet certain demos. So they'll say, oh, well, our product really speaks to women 2554. Our product is really aimed at men 2554, whatever the case may be. There are certain demos that are viewed as being more valuable uh, real estate, uh, more valuable eyeballs, because they're going to be more apt to go out and spend the money. And so that's really what this comes down to. When we talk about a dip in viewership, we're talking about ad rates. We're talking about, uh, the potential, uh, sponsors for shows. And as those numbers dwindle, so do the dollars associated with it. So in 1998, uh, your average viewers, uh, for a nitro product are 5,154,000. Uh, so pretty strong 5.1 million. 99, 3.9. So pretty substantial. More than a million people who were watching 
have left. There's very few wrestling programs that a million people see today, uh, specifically raw and SmackDown and nothing else. Fair to say. Yeah. Fair to say. And that, you know, and that was roughly, let's call it a 25%, uh, decline in audience just to round out the numbers. The, the, Critical part of that is back in 96, 97, 98, the increase in our audience came primarily not from the 25 to 54 year old demo, which was still our core. Don't and I know this gets confusing if you haven't spent you know two years in the advertising world. This all these terms and and the concepts are a little bit confusing, but. You know, our our core demo was still 2554, but the growth that we were experiencing in 96, 97, 98, which is why we were able to attract a lot of new sponsors, the growth in the audience was in that 18 to 34 male demo. Now, the 18 to 34 year male demo was a much more attractive demographic or age group for advertisers. Why? Because they spend more money. You know, 18, 19, 20, 22, 25-year-old men spend more money socially. You know, they're, a lot of them are, you know, they've got their first jobs. They're fresh out of college. They're buying new cars. You know, they're spending more money on clothes. Whereas, you know, a 25 to 54-year-old male is pretty much set in their ways. And their wives actually control the budget. So that young demo that we lost you know, that, that, that 1 million, those 1 million viewers that represent the deterioration, you know, 99 from 98 was primarily that younger demo. So even though it was only a 25% decline in total audience, it represented probably about a 40% decline in advertising revenue because those 18 to 34 year old males, even though they didn't make up the bulk of the audience, an advertiser would be willing to pay rather than spending. And again, I'm picking numbers arbitrarily out of my head. I don't remember what they were, but let's say males 25 to 54 years old, we were selling, let's, let's call it $10 a thousand, meaning for every thousand, 1000 of those viewers in that age group that we could quantify through um, Nielsen an advertiser would pay us $10 for every 1000 of them. Well, for an 18 to 34 year old, demo in advertiser might pay us 18 to 22 dollars a thousand so even though it represented a 25 percent decrease in audience it represented a much more significant decrease in total ad sales does did i explain that well you hit a home run and that was one of the best segments we've ever had on the show of explaining the way television revenue matters and uh yeah, I hope a lot of people were paying attention to that. Let's briefly mention Thunder and Saturday Night, and then we'll move on from this discussion. In 98, you've got 3.7 million viewers for Thunder. Uh, you're averaging 3 million in 99. Uh, sort of the same story on Saturday Night. You're averaging 2 million viewers. No, this is, uh, I stand corrected. Uh, Saturday Night stands the test of time, baby. In 98, you're averaging 2 million. Uh, in 99, you're averaging 1.99. So those, uh, those are your hardcores. They're going to watch wrestling anytime it's on TV and they're there no matter what you said something a minute ago, Eric, that I don't want to get too far away from before I circle back, because I thought it was pretty insightful when you said, Hey, you know what? Uh, this show, 11,000 fans, 444,000 our gate, 71,000 in merch. You made the statement these days, that would be a good weekend. Of course, we're talking about a three day stretch a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, house show loop. 
Whereas you just this, did this in one show here, but yet two months after this, you would find yourself out of a job in a weird way, sort of a victim of your own success, right? The expectations are so high based on what you've achieved that now anything less, it's sort of like if you bring home all A's on your report card, when you fuck around and bring home a B you're in trouble. I honestly, I didn't get sent home because of lack of performance. You know, I, I know that's not the narrative and it would be very easy for anybody, you know, just whether you have an agenda or not, it would be very easy for anybody to kind of look at the total picture, you know, when you're not in, in the loop or part of the process and say, Oh, well, the numbers were going down. They were losing money or not, not doing as well as they should have been doing. Uh, so let's get rid of Eric and bring somebody else in. That wasn't the reason I got sent home. I got sent home because I was a dick. I got sent home because I was fighting for something I believed in. I didn't really understand the nature of corporate mergers and corporate takeovers. I had no idea that Ted Turner was getting sent out to pasture. Neither did Ted. Here, 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 no there, but it was true. I, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'm going to push this thing till it breaks because when it breaks, me and Ted are going to sit down and 80% of the time I'll come out the way I need to come out. Well, I, I was picking fights with people I shouldn't have picked fights with. You know, I was naive inexperienced and unsophisticated in the ways of dealing with a, a situation like this. And it was bad judgment. I, I, I went into battle not knowing the army I was fighting. <laughs> I thought I was fighting one army and fighting one, and I prepared for battle as a result of what I thought I knew without knowing. I, was, I really had an entirely different battle going on in my hands. And the way I conducted myself was, you know, I set myself up. You know, it was just my nature at the time. And again, lack of experience and, and being naive. You can't huh. call out. Look, you, you, you can't publicly embarrass people who are on the board of directors. <laughs> you, know, right. you just can't. You can't I, I should say board of directors on the executive committee. You know, there were people that were, you know, two doors down from Ted Turner. And I was I was calling them out just like I would anybody else who I disagreed with. And I would not necessarily do it privately. And that's why I got sent home. And the fact that in Harvey Schiller, you know, we don't, we talk about Harvey a little bit. Harvey was a tough dog. You know, he, he was a colonel in the Air Force. He had a very, you know, military way of conducting his business. He built his entire infrastructure and in, in his staff uh, in, in a way that was, you know, there was a lot of similarities between the way he you know, he operated as an officer in the Air Force and the way he ran his office. And and I liked it, by the way. I had no issue with that at all. I had no real issues with Harvey. And actually, I don't want to say there was a mentor-mentee relationship there because that would be over-exaggerating it. But there was an element of that. You know, Harvey would let me go off the reservation as much as he felt I needed to to, to be me. But when I started getting a little too close to the edge where it looked like I was going to come off. Um, he'd reel me in, sit me down. He talked to me, but he would do it in a, in a way that, you know, he was, he was mentoring me in his own way. Um, Harvey, Harvey, he, he, he was reading me. He knew I was at the end of my rope. I was, I was making again, bad judgment, exercising poor judgment, uh, in the way I was conducting my business. Um, uh, just the stress of it all. 
You know, he could look. There's a difference between talking to me in 97 and 98 when I was on fire. I, you know, I couldn't wait to get out of bed in the morning. I, I just I hated to leave at night. I, 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 you know, the, the, that guy, you know, that Eric Bischoff was fun to be around, even if even if you didn't really want to. It was still it was a positive thing most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. By 1999, you know, <laughs> I would walk into a room and it was like uh, I was just breathing fire and and not in a good way. So uh, Harvey saw it. And, and I think he, you know, he sent me home in September. Not that this show's not about that, but two months after this pay-per-view, I think he sent me home, you know, thinking that if there's any way to salvage this guy, uh, I got to get him the fuck out of here because <laughs> he's burning him. He's setting himself on fire at this point. You've, uh, you've been pretty honest on this show about sort of owning up and saying, boy, I fucked that up. Boy, I should have handled this that way and things like that. I mean, you, you learned a lot of lessons in this venture and You've had a crack to do that, you know, not just with WCW, but with impact. Is this like the most, um, well-rounded and maybe grounded and humble and, um, resilient Eric Bischoff that's about to go back to WWE that has ever been in the wrestling business? Well, there's no doubt. I have, you know, so much more experience, good and bad than I had at this point. I mean, that's undeniable. You know, TNA, I can't really count that. Uh, That was, it was just kind of a one-off situation more than anything else. I wasn't, I wasn't involved in corporate at all. I wasn't involved in any any decision-making. I really didn't interface with anybody. In fact, I made it, I made it a point not to, you know, I was, I was invited. I remember, I'll never forget one time Dixie called me up and, and again, let's put this in context. My contract was basically as a consultant, right? I, I wasn't required to be in the office. I wasn't required to take part in any conference calls. I wasn't involved or required or asked to be involved in any of the decision or finance, you know, certainly not nothing financial, but any in the any of the operational elements of TNA. That was just not my thing. I was there to look at the formats, you know, try to make as try to make as much sense out of them as I possibly could. I couldn't hire, I couldn't fire. I had no authority over anybody or anything other than the influence I had creatively. And that basically was either people agreed with it or they didn't. Nobody was, I I didn't have creative control of anything. I wasn't anybody's boss. So uh, just to put that in the context, but nonetheless, because I am who I am during that period of time, once I kind of got into it, I, I got into it and I'll never forget Dixie called me one day. She goes, well, you know, we have our weekly, you know, conference call with Janice Carter. And, you know, we want you to Janice wants you on that call. I, and it just rubbed me the wrong way. And and I and I said, nah, I'm, I got stuff to do today. I didn't. But I, I just didn't want to get involved in it. I didn't want to interface with management at TNA. So that that's a separate one off kind of a situation. But clearly the experience I, I, I had at Turner primarily and and subsequently you know, I, I work with networks now, or I have for the last 15 years at a very, very high level. Uh, it, it, you just learn, you get older, you get wiser and sure. I'm more well-rounded now and have a lot more experience, but that's for sure. I think my outlook is a lot different now than it would have been 20 years ago. Uh, and my goals are different now than they would have been 20 years ago. So it's, it's a, I don't say it's better 
Eric Bischoff, but it's certainly a much different one. I'm going to go with better. I'm pulling for you. So let's talk about, uh, what's in your favorite newsletter at the time. Um, Dave Meltzer would write Hogan was smooth and his delivery was excellent. He's recapping Hogan's appearance on the June 24th edition of the Larry King live show. Hogan was there for the whole hour. And there is a little bit of controversy coming out of this because, uh, Hogan says the wrong thing. Um, I feel like that's been in the news more than maybe it should have, but here he's saying that, you know, he got the name and, uh, he sort of hit it big in wrestling when his name changed and his persona changed and he was only making $125 a week and sleeping in his car. And he's probably talking about working for Jerry Jarrett and, and Memphis there. But then eventually he's no longer Terry, the Hulk Boulder. And now he's Hulk Hogan. And that's because McMahon wants him to have uh, sort of an ethnic name with the idea being that there's, um, Bruno San Martino for the Italians and Pedro Morales for the Puerto Ricans and chief J Strongbow for the Indians. And Hogan mistakenly says Ivan Putzky for the Polacks. And he comes under huge criticism from the Polish national Alliance. And of course, Hogan didn't mean anything by that. Didn't know it was a racial slur, whatever the case may be, but it's, it's the first time that we see, uh, WCW sort of having to figure out, Hey, how do we navigate this? For Hulk, because he's never been in this spot before. He's always so polished. And then, you know, in this free form conversation of an hour, he says the wrong thing. Does, does Turner, I mean, this is a Turner property. He's on CNN. Does Turner sort of say, all right, how do we address this? How do we handle this? Or what's the response? Yeah, there, there, there was a reaction uh, corporately to it. It was clearly, uh, you know, a, a mistake, a, a bad mistake. Uh, and there was internally a discussion with public relations. Okay. How do we address this? You know, do you ignore it? How do you, how do you make it? How do you mitigate it? You can't make it go away. You can't right. take it back, but how do you mitigate it and make it as least uh, damaging as you possibly can? And particularly in Turner broadcasting at the time, keep in mind, you know, Ted Turner, you know, Ted Turner was an easy guy to work for, you know, his, his leadership within Turner broadcasting was such that, uh, you know, he'd, he'd say things off the cuff. I mean, he was, you know, <laughs> he was the mouth of the South. You know, he was that guy that, you know, everybody, every time, you know, Ted Turner did an interview, whether it was because he, you know, won a yacht race or because he was talking about CNN, you know, he had no trouble getting microphones because you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. He was as unpredictable as anybody in wrestling. Um, at that time, even he was crazy. Some of the stuff he would say and do his antics were, you know, legendary. And that's why so many people loved working for him. He was out there. He was an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. But there was one, there was one thing that he was really, really adamant about. And you learned it early on once you became an executive in Turner Broadcasting, is you were never, ever to utter the word foreigner. It's international. Right. You know, it's not foreign sales, it's international sales. It's not our foreign business opportunity. It's our international business opportunity. And it was a real, uh, it was a real issue. And you would be chastised. You'd get away with a lot of stuff. You could come to work, you know, for a corporate meeting wearing Bermuda shorts, flip-flops, and a Hawaiian shirt. And, and you'd probably get away with it, you know, once or twice. But if you uttered the word foreigner or foreign in the context of Turner business, You'd, you'd get pulled over to the corner and you'd have a conversation with somebody. So I think the, 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 the reason that 
Turner corporate aside, you know, generally it was the wrong thing to do, but I think especially in Turner at the time, everybody was overly sensitive to what Hulk said and they felt like just addressing it, you know, was the best way to do it. I also want to mention that, uh, this Larry King interview is worth going out of your way to see, because there's so much stuff covered, you know, he's talking about thunder and paradise and you know, how he first blew up and Vince McMahon as a promoter, but then he starts to talk about how he's referring to the WWF as triple X porn. And he's saying that the WCW method is going to win in the end. And he says that, you know, people like himself and Bret Hart working together, are they're going to make wrestling suitable entertainment for children again. And they discuss the Owen Hart tragedy and the Sable lawsuit. And even, you know, Jesse Ventura and the rumor of there being a union and that he helped nix it. There's just a lot of stuff discussed here, but the thing that, that stood out to me, uh, was when they talked about Vince McMahon, Hogan said, I have a lot of respect for how he's taking care of his family. As far as a businessman, his theme of ride the horse until it drops, shoot it, then eat the horse. I don't agree with Whew, heck of a line there. What'd you think when you heard that one? Look, Hulk is and always has been, uh, he, he's a showman. He he's he's working. He's and he says things. He said things, especially back then, in a way that he thought would advance the cause. And he was fighting for he was fighting for WCW, whether whether it was accurate or 100 percent true or 100 percent the way he felt he was doing what he felt the company would want him to do. And oftentimes, you know, the judgment was off, you know, and, and, and I, I can I can tell you, for example, in referencing how the way WCW was going to conduct their business the way versus the way WWF was at the time, you know, with the attitude era and all the extreme kind of, you know, mature audience stuff that they were doing. He didn't believe that. I guarantee it. Neither did I. I said it, too. I was advancing the company line. That was the corporate line, the corporate line, the mandate, not, not suggestion, not offering, not hope. The mandate was, this is what we're going to do, advance the cause. And we were forced, as much as I promised you last week, I wouldn't bring up the meeting in July of 1998, but that's <laughs> when it started. We, we, we were told, this is how you're going to do it, and this is what the company's going to do go do it. And part of what you heard in that interview was all doing what he thought the company wanted him to do. Something else that he thinks the company wants him to do is push this presidency angle. And when it comes up on Larry King, he tries to take it seriously. And he says that, uh, there's people at time Warner who wanted him to run for president. And when Larry sort of pushes the issue, he says that it was Eric Bischoff who was pushing him to do this. And <laughs> he said he never committed to running, but then he said he made the announcement that he was running on Jay Leno. And then Larry King said, well, can you make the announcement on his show? Which is kind of fun. Um, King and him go back and forth saying, you know, I don't know that you'd be able to debate, debate people like, uh, Al Gore. <laughs> Hogan says something like, yeah, I'd have to be brought up to speed. And he pushes flat tax and keeps saying, putting America first, but just for a minute here, he's trying to sell Larry King on the idea that he's going to run for president. That really tells you everything you need to know about the rest of the interview. Does it not? Uh, no, the funniest part of this is, 
you know, and he, he, you know, he got all excited. And here's another thing. And I, I want to be really careful about what I say because it can be misinterpreted so easily. And, you know, with social media and the way people react to things on social media, I'm, I'm ultra careful about what I say sometimes. And this is a case, this is one of those cases because I know Hulk so well sure. and, and, and I love him. You know, I, his intentions are always good. Uh, almost all the time. And that, you know, him coming out and saying he was going to run for president, I had nothing to do with that. That was him. He just got all jacked up in an interview and got excited. He Sometimes he's like a little kid and in a good way. He gets himself so worked up, and, and he's he's like a 15-year-old kid, you know, on Christmas morning. He's just he's so excited, or a 10-year-old kid on Christmas morning, and he's so excited when he's on these interviews, and stuff will come out of his mouth just – and he won't, he's not thinking about it, you know, prior to saying it, he didn't, he doesn't, he doesn't show up on a set with, well, I can't wait till they ask me this. And I'm going to say, I'm going to run for president. Sometimes it's just spontaneous combustion. And then if it doesn't go well, <laughs> no, that was Eric Bischoff's idea. <laughs> Eric wanted me to run for president. I can assure you, Eric Bischoff did not suggest to Hulk Hogan that he should say he's going to run for president. That was a Hulk. And sorry, sorry, Oxer. <laughs> so he he just did that all on his own. It wasn't discussed ahead of time. He just thought, "Hey, this would get people talking," and then you hear about it after the fact. No, no, we didn't talk about it prior. It just came out of his mouth, and it was like, "Okay, how do we make this work?" Jesus. Now, now the cat's out of the you know they can't put the horse back in the barn, as they say out here in Wyoming and probably everywhere else. You know, all right, the horse is out. Now what do we do? <laughs> the horse, the horse is not going back in the barn. So, how do we make this work? How do we make the most of it? But it wasn't like, you know, we, it wasn't premeditated. Let's put it that way. Uh, let's get back to the newsletter. Meltzer would write. Does it seem like everything is falling apart? Well, then this. Why should this week be any different from any other? The Master P deal has turned into a colossal joke and may have already fallen apart. Last week in New Orleans. Master P kept making demands on WCW for more limos and more perks, trying to renegotiate contracts, showing less than zero respect for Bischoff. And then the next morning, one of his bodyguards were, was arrested at the airport for carrying a gun. I feel like we've heard a story about that gun here on the show. Yeah. For all of you listeners who thought I was making that up. There you go. Uh, there must've been a blow up because late last week, it was said that both his and Dennis Rodman's appearance for the July 5th, Georgia dome show were in jeopardy. Both were still being advertised as of the 29th of June, but nobody seems to know for sure whether or not they're going to appear. The latest inside word was that P, uh, was through with WCW, but swole is going to be at nitro and is going to start distancing himself from P since he was the one who was the real wrestling fan out of the group. And, uh, there are reports that swole signed a one year contract for $400,000. Uh, which is said to be not all that much less than what Jericho was offered. And there were also reports that master P was getting $200,000 per appearance on nitro chat me up was master P making 200 grand per appearance. Let me first put, uh, Meltzer's nonsense in context. Uh, 90% of that is bullshit. And, and there's no way Dave would ever know. Cause he didn't have access to anybody that did like always, <clears throat> This this guy would rely on second, third, fourth, fifth-hand information. Anybody that would acknowledge anything that he felt like he wanted to write, <clears throat> if he could find somebody, even if it was a janitor, 
to go, yeah, who knows? That's what I heard. Well, then Dave would report it as a fact. Dave, Dave was never in a room in any of my negotiations with Master P to, to be able to, with any authority or credibility, which clearly he has none at this point, um, at that point, I should say, in 1999, and I don't think he has any now. But I can tell you for a fact, he was never in the room or near anybody that was, and I'm real certain he didn't have a relationship with Master P. So, again, that was Dave, you know, wanting to write something and, and finding some, you know, enhancement talent that happened to be in the building at the same time as us who did his best to corroborate, corroborate what Dave wanted to write. Um, so 90% of everything he just, you know, attributed to him was nonsense. That being said, uh, Master P was never a long-term deal. It was a it was a short term program, as was Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was never going to be a long term player, so to suggest that you know the, the the relationship is deteriorating and things are falling apart, and Master P and Bischoff aren't getting along, and P doesn't respect him, and Dennis Rodman's you know on his way out. Guess what? That was a fucking plan all along. So it, the context of it all is what irritates me. Because it distorts the reality of the situation. Now, in terms of what P was making, I don't know. You know, you probably know better than I do because you keep access, you keep you know, records of all that stuff or have access to it. I don't keep that shit. I don't have, you know, all, all of the old, you know, contract payouts that I know floating around out there somewhere in the internet. Uh, I can't tell you off the top of my head if it was close or not. It probably was. It was a short-term deal with a very high-profile athlete who, by the way, and talent and entertainer who we've talked about in a couple weeks ago was one of the most prominent players in the entertainment at that time. So it's not like those numbers were, you know, completely off the charts at that point. They were, if you compare them to a full-time wrestler, yeah, there could be an argument, you know, from a Chris Jericho or somebody else that was making that amount of money that, Hey, why should this guy come in and make something close to what I'm making when I'm 365 days a year and he's in and out? Well, because motherfucker, he's got, you know, two Grammy albums and he's, you know, all the things that he's just done, which, by the way, you haven't done yet this year. So, you know, it's not always apples to apples. You know, people like to think it is. People, you know, suggest that it should be sometimes. But those people aren't in the entertainment business. Um, so, you know, it was what it was. But I don't remember what P was making at this point. I really don't. Chris Harrington's report is uh, from the, the court records that he's sort of. Uh, compiled and put together online, uh, show that master P made $293,000, uh, from WCW in 1999. So a lot different than what people were led to believe And swole, according to this uh, same document showed that he got a first year salary of $350,000 and then a $50,000 signing bonus. And his contract would be, uh, terminated in September. So. That's the reality. Talk to me a little bit about swole. You know, uh, you know, I, obviously I had some contact with him. I worked with him. You know, he had a great look. Uh, he, he loved the business, uh, because of his proximity and, and the rub that he had with P he was viable, uh, as a performer, as an entertainer. Uh, and we thought that he might have some potential. So it was a risk that we were worth you know, we felt was worth taking. It added some diversity to our roster, which we needed at the time. And again, you know, more than anything, his proximity 
to Master P. And, you know, we also anticipated that should it work out with him and he actually take to the business and really commit to it down the road, we could look forward to some further support from Master P, whether it be in music or appearances or videos or whatever. Uh, those are all things that give you, you know, a distinct advantage in growing and developing a newer talent. He wasn't a young talent, but he was a new talent. So, you know, it was a calculated risk and we took it. Let's talk about something that blew my mind when I read it this week. Uh, Meltzer would write, Jimmy Hart has made a proposal to book WCW Saturday night. There's talk of building the show around only young guys and trying to do Memphis style angles with guys, guys who aren't on Nitro to give them experience at talking and doing programs. Although at this point, Kevin Sullivan is still in charge of the show and there has been no format change. Uh, that's an interesting idea, making Saturday night more of a Memphis style show and putting Jimmy Hart in control of it. Yeah, we ultimately did that. And Jimmy, Jimmy did a great job, you know, as you pointed out in, in terms of the rating and look by this point, by 1997, Saturday, WCW Saturday night was an afterthought, right? It just was you know, on a list of priorities. It was, you know, down towards the bottom of the things you thought about on any given day, right? Because it, it was, it just kind of ran on its own. The expectations from the network were easy to meet, it, you know, give us a show, <laughs> you know, as long as it's a reasonable show and look at the history of that show, you know, it, it was the oldest show, you know, in, in WCW and Alan Turner, but it was never one of those shows. And you could get lost in the ratings because back in the early 90s, when there were fewer households that had access to cable, you know, the percentage of people watching was higher. So it was really easy to, yeah, but they got three ratings. Yeah, but that three ratings still only represented 1.5 million people or whatever. I don't know what the number was, but you get my point. You can, you can allow, you know, numbers can lie very, you know, allow you to lie to yourself if you're not careful. It, it, the point is that from a corporate point of view, um, my bosses, the people I answer to, WCW, as long as we kept it fed and watered and it didn't die, we're good. <laughs> it served its purpose. It had very little budget allocation. Uh, it had very little resources thrown at it. There was almost no promotion given to it. It served its purpose. And it, its audience, as you pointed out succinctly, held steady no matter what we did. And we did have a lot of talent that needed television time. You can't learn what you need to learn in the power plant or, or even on the indie circuit or in WCW's case on the house show circuit sometimes because there just weren't enough people uh, in the arenas oftentimes for those types of shows. And more importantly, there was just so much talent. You couldn't put everybody on the house show tour, even if you wanted to. So, it, it was Jimmy's idea. And, and look at what came out of that. You know, Shane Helms. You know, that's a Jimmy Hart thing. You know, three count. That was Jimmy Hart. So much, of, you know, of that young talent. Uh, Jimmy Yang. Jimmy Hart. You know, so many of those guys, those young guys that were coming out of, off of, you know, WCW Saturday Night actually went on to become pretty significant talent down the road. Some of them still working in the industry today. So I think, you know, I, I, I sometimes tongue in cheek knock Jimmy, you know, every once in a while because he never found a red light on a camera he didn't love. Um, but at the same time, he was very passionate, very committed. He worked like a dog. 
you know, whether his ideas were right or wrong, you know, it wasn't because his intentions weren't a hundred percent honorable and good and he worked his guts up. So yeah, there was conversation about it, but we actually at one point did it. Meltzer's going to write WCW signed 21 new wrestlers in recent weeks to developmental deals, ranging from 300 to $1,000 per week, which tie the wrestlers to WCW for three years. But the company can basically cut the wrestlers at its will. Besides Shane Helms and Shannon Moore, another guy signed was Jerry Toot, who has wrestled Jersey Indies as Hellraiser and a 6'8", 300-plus. That's going to be the wall, by the way. The wrestlers are to work security at the Nitros and go to the power plant five days per week. There's a lot of criticism since the power plant has turned out so few wrestlers and basically hasn't on its own groomed anyone who would be ranked as a good worker. What do you make of the criticism of the power plant? Bill Goldberg. Diamond Dallas Page. Sorry, coughing. Got something stuck in my throat. I got to go gag up a Meltzer. Um, bullshit. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest we cranked them out like, you know, cupcakes. <laughs> we didn't. You know, the power plant was the best we had and, and the best approach we had at that time. We weren't working with any independent, you know, wrestling organizations to, de- to try to develop talent. Um, we did the best we had with what we could. But, yeah, there was some decent talent that came through there or out of there. You know, DDP and, and uh, Bill Goldberg being two of them that are the highest profile. But there were others, and there were other wrestlers that had learned somewhere else, perhaps, that had to relearn uh, or get better, at least, in the power plant. So it, it definitely served its purpose. And, you know, hashtag fuck Dave Meltzer. Oh, my gosh. Why are you doing that? Because he deserves it. Okay. I disagree, but all right. Uh, Shane Douglas signs with WCW around this same time. What, what can you tell us about Shane coming in? Any memories of working with Shane or, or how that deal comes together? Yeah, he, again, he reached out. I think he had a relationship with Kevin Sullivan. That was the, the catalyst for it, uh, or at least how it started. Uh, and I, you know, I would, I always I knew who Shane was and knew of him with his relationship with WWF when he was there as the wasn't he the genius? Uh, his, no, his um, Dean Douglas. Dean Douglas, but he, he was like that school teacher That's right. type of character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That, that was my first memory of him. Uh, the word I heard, I, you know, I didn't know him at all. I wasn't totally familiar with his work other than what I saw in WWF. You know, and that was way earlier. Uh, but the word I got from most people is that he was, you know, a great in-ring talent and, uh, a great talker. Well, that's all you gotta, it's all you gotta tell me. To get me interested, if you if you're a great worker and you you can work the mic, I'm yeah I want to talk to you, and I I like Shane right off the bat, and I still do. We still cross paths to this day, and I got along with him right off the bat. He was easy to negotiate with, and uh, he brought some baggage, no doubt, uh, but it was relatively easy to manage. Oh man, this is a fun quote here in an article in the June 25th Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel by Alex Marvez of AEW now. Uh, Eric Bischoff admitted WCW fell asleep at the wheel after the NWO gimmick ran its course and blamed the WWF for changing audience expectations for their current problems. Quote, the WWF raised the bar in terms of expectations of the audience in a way this company has decided we're not going to compete with. It's an audience who really doesn't care about advertising and long-term business growth. All they want to do is be entertained, shocked, surprised, and have something to talk about 
Tuesday morning when they go to school or work. I think a lot of people, uh, like younger wrestling fans think Alex Marvez just popped up out of nowhere when he showed up in AEW. but the reality is, man, he's been writing about wrestling for decades. Yeah. <laughs> My go-to here is you did a lot of stuff with Alex. How did that relationship come to be? I mean, you weren't just passing out interviews back in the day, but it seems like you always had a word for Alex. No, well, he, he wrote for a legitimate newspaper, the Miami Herald, I think at the time. Um, and yeah, if there was, you know, if there was a writer who was covering the industry from a legitimate newspaper, um, I would do my best to make that interview work, take advantage of it, whether I liked what they wrote or, or not, you know, in Alex's case, uh, uh, I don't recall whether I had a strong feeling one way or the other at the time. Uh, I generally didn't like wrestling journalists, you know, I just, no, I don't, I don't know. I guess when you're in the industry and you've got people who are constantly, you know, writing about things and getting them wrong, you know, some of the times, most of the time, depending on who you're talking to, uh, it, it irritates you. But at the same time, you realize that at least they're covering it. And let's try to take advantage of it. You would tailor your interviews accordingly and the things that you said accordingly, knowing that depending on who you talk to, they're going to twist and turn your words and make it sound like you said something you didn't say or you, you, you didn't say something you wanted to, but whatever. But yeah, I, I did interviews with Alex because it was with a credible uh, newspaper. Let's talk about the uh, go home edition of Nitro on our way to this pay-per-view bash at the beach. It's at the Georgia Dome. It draws 25,338 fans, 19,456 of those paid an incredible gate, $594,745. Even though that's a huge number, it's still technically the smallest audience that you'd had at the Georgia dome. And this nitro is the first time that Brett has made an appearance in WCW since the tragedy that befell Owen Hart. And, um, this, this is a special show, um, a tremendous video on Brett and you guys are going to talk to him about his career and the death of Owen and it's narrated by Mike Tanay. It gets a huge ovation in the Georgia dome and, uh, it set the stage for his return. Meltzer would write, according to those live, the reaction was very strong. Although WCW has had problems with crowd miking and this show was no exception and it wasn't as impressive on television. Uh, but Hart was clearly not ready to be put in front of the public to talk about his own career. Um, obviously a a pretty emotional deal here. What do you remember about him coming back and you guys deciding to put together a video package and, um, just how this, this whole return came to be. We talked about it. We didn't force him to do it. We didn't pressure him to do it. It was totally his call. 100% his call. If, if, if he would have said, no, I'm not ready to do that, we would have said, great, we'll, we'll do it when you're ready. If you're ready, if you don't ever want to do it, we don't, we won't ever do it. This was not something that we weren't trying to exploit. In fact, I was super, um, sensitive to the, cause I knew there'd be criticism from, from people. If, if, you know, we suggested strongly that Brett do it or, or pressured him to do it or made him feel even if we weren't strongly suggesting if, if Brett did, felt like he was doing something he wasn't ready to do, then we would be set on fire by the audience, you know, at least the peripheral media 
for asking him to. So that was, you know, whatever, you know, Dave may or may not have been trying to imply and suggesting that he wasn't ready to be in front of an audience talking about his career. It was a hundred percent his choice. I, I, to, to, at that point and to this day have nothing but respect for Bret Hart. We, we've, May not see eye to eye, and like I said before, we're 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 probably never going to break bread, and and hang out. But you know, my respect for him hasn't changed, despite our personal issues. And I was really respectful of this situation with Brett. So it may have been he may have thought he was ready. It may have been a little harder for him than he thought it was going to be, but it was his choice. Yeah, I do want to mention that. Brett wrote about this in his book. He said that Eric asked me to fly down and meet him in Chicago on June 25th to talk about where I was at. It was still nearly impossible for me to even think about getting back into the ring. But as the days passed, I realized it wasn't right for me or my fans to let Owen's tragic death be the end of my career. Eric had been incredibly kind after Owen's death, telling me to take all the time I needed. And I didn't want to leave him in the lurch either. He says at the meeting, Hulk is friendly and tells him he's anxious to finally work with him in the fall. And you sort of talked to him about maybe putting the world title on him when he was ready. And, uh, he finally makes the decision to, to come back. You guys shake hands content that he's going to show up at the Georgia dome and do an in-ring interview. And he says, Eric told me I could say anything I wanted to wrestling fans around the world for the next 10 days. I thought about it almost all the time. I really didn't know what I'd say. Maybe it would be goodbye. But then when he walked into the dressing room at the Georgia dome, he said, all the boys got up from their chairs one after another to offer their condolences. And in that moment, he felt more support and unity from his wrestling family than he did from his blood siblings. And it meant a lot to him when Randy Savage gave him a hug with tears in his eyes saying, brother, I'm so sorry. And everyone's offering condolences or trading fun Owen stories, you know, Randy's there, Hacksaw, Crush, Brian Knobs, lots of guys who were friendly with Owen. And then it was time for him to do the interview. And, uh, he says, even on his way to the ring, he didn't really know what he was going to say, but he was just going to, you know, shoot from the hip and it would be straight from the heart. And, uh, he didn't do any gimmicks. There's no Hitman shades. There's no ring gear. There's no hair gel, no leather jacket. And he just wants to come talk to him. He doesn't really, you know, make a big promise. He's just sort of being honest with fans and saying he's going to take some time and put things in perspective and thank you for all your support. And if this is the last chance I have to say this, uh, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you and thank you all very much. And thank you to all the wrestlers in dressing rooms all over the world. And it's sort of a happy moment. When he comes back through the curtain, what'd you think? I had tears in my eyes. I almost, I'm, and I almost started to get him right now. Listening to you recap that, it, you know, and sometimes in this industry, when it's real, it's so special because yeah. we, we become desensitized because of, you know it's scripted the characters are over the top the storylines are over the top everything that you see in in a great way I'm, I'm not i mean that's one of the reasons why this industry has sustained itself for as long as it has the audience loves that but they also become desensitized to it so much so that when you have a real moment 
however big or small, in this case, obviously a major one and in a very uh, heartfelt one with, with a real human tragedy and real human emotion, it, it, it takes people by, it takes their breath away because they're, they become so desensitized by everything they see in, in this industry on television week in and week out that when you do slip something in the door that's real, it, it changes everything for them. And it actually brings them closer to the talent. It brings them closer to the business because they realize, yes, these are larger than life characters. These are people I probably deep down inside wish I could be. It's aspirational in that regard, you know, the industry is and the characters in it. But every once in a while when they break character and they talk about who they really are and how they're really feeling, it can have a profound impact on the audience. And I saw it, you know, and again, I, I was, the last thing I was going to try to do was script something for, for Brett. That would have been insane. And so against anything I believed in at the time and even to this moment, it was like, okay, whatever happens out there is going to happen and it's going to be real and it's going to be, it's going to be honest. And if it's honest, it's going to be good. And it was so good because it was so honest. And it, 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 nobody was exploiting anything. Nobody, you know, as you pointed out, as Brett pointed out in his book, he didn't know. He still didn't know. Even when he got out of the ring, he didn't know where he was going to end up. But at least he got out there and he touched people. He touched me. You know, I don't want to talk about it anymore because I'll start crying like a baby. Move on. Let's talk about Sting. <laughs> he does an interview in the uh, Miami Herald on July 9th with John Patton. And there's lots of ground covered, including. You know, he had an offer from Vince McMahon, but he had already shook your hand and, and agreed to your terms. So he was a man of his word and never considered it. And he knew he couldn't let his kids watch that show. And, he, you know, it talks a lot of, about different things in wrestling. But the thing that stood out to me is when asked about if WCW wanted him to stop wearing the trench coat after the Columbine massacre, he said he didn't want to do it anymore. And he told Bischoff that and Bischoff agreed. He says he's looking at wrestling two and a half more years before retiring. Um, those are the two things that stuck out in this interview, but specifically Columbine happened on April 20th, 1999. And for those of you who don't remember, a couple of kids went into a school in Colorado wearing trench coats and had automatic weapons and just mowed kids down. These days, uh, we're unfortunately much more familiar with school shootings, but this was really the first major one like this. And, um, it got the national conversation going for the first time and because they're wearing trench coats i never really put that together but sting did what do you remember about the trench coat situation well the you know the media made a really big deal out of it you know that was there was a focus on how the kids dressed and you know they had uh, the, the kids you know, I'm working off memory here it was a while ago but the kids the shooters uh, in the columbine shooting all were very goth, very dark. You know, they 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 had that kind of crow look to them. Uh, not that they were certainly not emulating Sting at the time, or the character Crow from the you know the the Brandon Lee movie, but that that goth character. I mean, it was prevalent in music. It was prevalent in fashion, and it happened to be the you know fashion choice of these shooters, these kids. And it was really the media spent a lot of time focusing on that element of these kids because everybody was trying to figure out how could this possibly happen? Who were these kids? How could they be so, 
you know, twisted and dark and, and, and broken to, to do something like this that was so nonsensical and almost abstract. And one of the things that they focused on was the music they listened to and the clothes they wear. And there was so much attention on it that I think, you know, Sting justifiably and rightfully um, became sensitive to it. And, and I, I agreed with him. You know, it was that was really the beginning, you know, but, but, you know, 96, 97, 98, the Internet was a pain in the ass. By 99, it was becoming a factor. It, you, you had to think more about it. Now, today, with social media, you really have to be careful. You, the, the lines you have to walk now to be politi- politically correct and safe are really, really narrow lines. And you, and you constantly have to be aware uh, of the jokes you, you try to make or the sense of humor you think is, you may think something's funny. And, you know, you're, it's what, and one of the reasons I don't try to be funny in social media. Number one, I'm not funny. I'm the unfunniest human being in the world. But, you know, humor is lost in 140 characters. Tone and intent is lost. I may type something, you know, I don't even write, you know, like, uh, text messages that I think are funny to someone. If you and I are going back and forth about something, I won't joke with you in a text message or an email because even though I'm trying to be funny, you may read that when you're having the worst moment of your life. And the way you interpret that could be entirely different to the way that I meant it. At least if you're in a room with me, you can look at my face and you know I'm trying to be funny even if I'm not. But if you get that email, you know, uh, at the worst, you know, minute of the morning when, you know, everything else around you is going bad and you look at an email where I'm trying to crack a joke, but you don't get it, it can go bad fast. So, but by April, after Columbine, you know, mid-1999 now, especially going into July of 1999, the internet was becoming a much bigger factor in what we were doing. So we were all kind of, I don't want to say overreacting, but possibly we were reacting properly, but or we were, our intentions were proper, but we weren't really sure how to react to this thing called the internet because it was becoming a monster. Let's get to bash at the beach. Uh, we're finally here. This is, uh, yeah, quite the show. There's going to be a tryout match, uh, before the camera start rolling some Florida independent workers there. Uh, and then the show opens with Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan, and no Mike Tanay. Instead, they throw to Mike Tanay, who's still dressed in his Hawaiian-style shirt, sort of on theme for Bash at the Beach. But he's not at the arena in Fort Lauderdale. He is instead at the junkyard, getting ready for the Battle Royal, uh, which Meltzer would say was poorly promoted on television with rules that weren't even formulated until the day of the event. Yeah. Um... We'll talk about it. Let's get to the first match. Ernest Miller is going to be taken on Disco Inferno. They'll go eight minutes and seven seconds. The stipulations for this match are serious. And everybody knows that Eric loves his stakes and you've got to have stakes and guys have to have an issue. They've got to have motivation to win and something's on the line. And what is it here? Well, the loser will never be allowed to dance in WCW ever again. Now that you make, you make fun. <laughs> you to defend this but do you know how much that meant to <laughs> ernest miller 
Ernest Miller loved that part of his gimmick. That's tremendous. He's great at it, but it's just, you know, I want the title belt. You stole my girl. You can't dance anymore. <laughs> just, you well, know. Imagine if you said to Ric Flair, you can't say, whoa, you can't do that anymore. Wait, Take wait, that wait. gimmick away from you. Wait, wait, hang on. What does Ric Flair say? I'm not going to do it again. Oh, that was embarrassing. <laughs> That was horrible. All right, let me try it one more thing. Just give me a second there. That's a voice kind of exercise. Woo! There you go. That wasn't bad. I love it. That's almost as fun as when you and I did the uh, sting a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, Ernest Miller and Disco go eight minutes and seven seconds. Thankfully, Ernest Miller wins. I'm so grateful with that too. Uh, Sonny Ono has the ref distracted at one point, and this gives Miller a chance to put on his red dancing shoe and kick Disco in the side of the head. Uh, <laughs> after the pin, Shivani says the stipulation that the loser couldn't dance has been removed, and Disco can still dance. Half a star. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's stakes. Okay, now that it's over, never mind those stakes. Yep. Next up, Rick Steiner. I'm letting you off the hook, buddy. Next up, Rick Steiner is going to pin Van Hammer. That's right. Van Hammer's on a fucking pay per view in 1999. Again. Four minutes, 51 seconds. Rick Steiner retains the WCW television title. And Shivani is pushing Van Hammer as being a great young star. He's like 39 years old here. <laughs> uh, it, it got a, a dud rating. Uh, it just, it just wasn't good. Uh, Rick Steiner, you know, very capable, but it feels like everybody tried something with Van Hammer and nothing ever took. No, that, that dog just never learned how to hunt. <laughs> it, it may have looked like a great hunting dog. It may have looked like a field trial champion at one point, And everybody wanted to go hunting with that dog. But that dog couldn't find his own ass with his nose. It just couldn't hunt. Well, how about this next one? I know you're excited about this one. We've got the United States championship on the line. Dean Belenko is going to be challenging for that coveted championship. And he's, uh, trying to see if he can best the champ, David flair. Uh, now early in this show, we, you know, I said, you know, if this would have been a WCW Saturday night, or not WCW Saturday, if this would have been a Nitro, it would have been a pretty, not great, but a decent Nitro. If this match would have been a Nitro match setting up a pay-per-view, I would be, I'd be defending the hell out of it. I'd be putting it over because it, 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 the match would have gotten heat. Ric Flair would have gotten heat. David Flair would have gotten heat. Now you've got a heel U.S. champion. you got a young guy in David Flair that the audience realized the only reason he was in that spot because of his father, which is instant heat anyway. So the, there was a lot of reasons why this match would have made all kinds of sense for television leading to a pay-per-view if on the pay-per-view David Flair would have got his ass kicked and Dean Malenko would have become the U.S. champ then it would have made perfectly good sense. And that creative strategy, that booking strategy would hold up today in today's environment. It would hold up, but that's not what we did. We delivered that as a pay-per-view finish and it just, uh, 
when I, as I said earlier on, there was no creative vision, there was no leadership, there was no direction. This is a perfect example. Tori Wilson is back in David's corner and, uh, they're just saying, well, I guess our 72 hours with Kevin Nash must be up. And, uh, the trouble with that is David won the match and she still left voluntarily. So that wasn't really a stake, but we mentioned it because I guess Shivani forgot. Uh, Meltzer would say Malenko actually did probably the best job of his career in carrying this to a negative one-star match. Uh, he got David in the cloverleaf, but Arn Anderson gave referee Johnny Boone, the spine buster Malenko then kicked and slammed Asia and put her in the cloverleaf. Charles Robinson is going to pull Boone's ref shirt off and put it on. And then Ric Flair hits Malenko with his shoe and David pins him after the match. Anderson stomps Malenko into the ground in the aisle, negative one star. So, I mean, you're using it to tell a story. Not a very competitive pay-per-view match. It is what it is. It's nice to see uh, the brother-in-law getting a win on pay-per-view. Appreciate the payday, Eric. No problem. Happy to do it. <laughs> Next up, Conan and Rey Mysterio are going to be in there with Swole and BA. And uh, they're going to win an elimination match over the Rapist Crap crew. It's Kurt Henning, Barry Windham, Kendall Windham, and uh, Bobby Duncan Jr. They go... 15 minutes and the crowd, believe it or not, is sort of a 50, 50 on this. Uh, they get a star and a half. It sort of is what it is. It ends when Ray Mysterio jr. Jumps off swole shoulders with a splash onto Kurt for the pin right at that 15 minute mark. What'd you think? Um, I think the music video setup leading into this match was one of the funniest things I've watched since the Russell rock rumble video by the AWA. Have you ever seen that? Yes, it's tremendous. Oh, my God. I just encourage people, go find it. WWE Network, go find it. But Wrestle Rock Rumble. You'll, trust me, you'll be glad you did. You can thank us all later. Throw it in your Google machine, and specifically, listen for Nick Bockwinkle. Nick Bockwinkle is oh. probably the show stealer of the whole rap. He, 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 had, he had it. He had game. What do they call it? Like when you're a good rapper, what do they call that? Nick Bockwinkle could spit, E.B., Spit? They call it spit? <laughs> I love that. Oh, my God. I love that. But, yeah, I, 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 it just cracked me up. It was so funny. And the funniest part, if you go back and find this, if you go back and watch this uh, particular pay-per-view on, on the network and you see the, the music video set up to this match that I'm referring to, get a load of Barry Windham on drums. There's, the, the man did not have an ounce of rhythm in his body. He's, he would have been the worst drummer in the history of drummers. It's a good thing he was a great wrestler and a great athlete and a super guy because he could not, he could, you could not have taught that, taught that man how to play drums. But it was funny as hell. Kurt Hennig was in his element. He loved it. He was having a blast. It was a good setup. You can knock it all you want, the match. You can knock the match all you want. You can, you know, Dave Meltzer one star it all you want. But the fact is, the audience found it entertaining. You know, you did get a 50-50 split in the audience, which is the the most you could possibly hope for. Half the audience wants this guy to win. Half the audience wants this, this side to win. Gosh, that's like perfect. Sorry, but it is. And the match itself, really what, given given what we had to work with, you know, these are celebrities and a lot of, a lot of these guys, you know, didn't know how to, how to work in the ring. But I thought it was a good match. I, man, better than good. I thought it was pretty great. I thought the setup was great. I thought the action was great. Certainly having Ray Mysterio in there to bounce around and make it look good and, and Brad Armstrong or BA in there to help uh, in that regard as well. 
I thought it came off really good. Uh, stay tuned at the end of the show. We'll play the, uh, wrestle rock rumble for you. Uh, why not put a little Easter egg on the end of today's show. You're going to need it after we get done talking about this junkyard battle Royal. It's uh 13 minutes and 50 seconds. It's a hardcore battle Royal in the junkyard. Yeah. Uh, it's not mentioned or hyped beforehand. Uh, but the winner is going to become the first hardcore champion and they don't have uh, a championship belt the next day. Instead, they just give the winner a trophy, but they will have a belt. Eventually it's done in a junkyard. The cars are neatly set up. There's a, a few fires lit for lighting, but there's no real professional lighting. So it's very, very dark. I've got a helicopter circling around. There's a bunch of wrestlers here. Uh, no one was ever really announced. And the rules are the first person to climb out of the junkyard over the fence is going to be the winner. But the weird thing is nobody tries to climb out. So there's that, but there's a ton of guys here. Uh, silver King was all bloody from a deep shoulder wound that needed 60 stitches to close. Uh, is running around in jeans instead of his usual outfit. Hack is going to wind up hospitalized and suffered a separated shoulder and a possible neck injury. Uh, Hugh Morris needs a bunch of stitches in his hand. When he goes through a windshield, Mikey Whipwreck catches a concussion. This is basically everything that was wrong with brawl for all just in one segment. Uh, it was a, it was a real look. Sometimes you're going to have a hardcore match. Let's make it real. Oh God. What? Oh my God. I can't believe you're really pretending to defend Isn't that the whole idea behind wrestling. Is it supposed to look real, but not really hurt anybody? Yeah. <laughs> well, if everybody's leaving, like it's a fucking war and they've got permanent nerve damage, it feels like, ah, maybe not credibility. Okay. Credibility. It's like, you know, when you here, here's what I love. These wrestlers get hurt. They get stitches or, you know, they're getting all staples in their head. What's the first fucking thing they do. They post them on social media. Like it's some kind of badge of freaking honor, which is it, a, a complete 180 in what you just said. But the first thing these guys, oh, look at me, I'm getting staples in the back of my head. Oh, look at me, I'm getting my knees sewed back on. Oh, look at me, I got my teeth knocked out. Here, look closely, you won't get a better shot. You know, everybody does it. So, yeah, they got hurt, they got busted up, but it gave its credibility. Our hardcore title, that little, you know, sheet metal saw blade, you know, with hardcore champion painted on it by hand, that meant something. You bled for that trophy. You oh. gave you, you you gave for that trophy. You put your body on the line for that trophy. Hey, let me get your opinion on this. So this uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Game Changer Wrestling (GCW) put on a show in a backyard, and it was called the Backyarder. And so, lots of wrestlers participated, and some of them used like gimmick names. But they used a trampoline. They used a kiddie pool. They had all the light tubes and doors and scaffolding. A dude jumped off a fucking house. I mean, it was wild. Uh, I mean, you're for that, right? I mean, that's what you're saying here about this junkyard battle royal. Sort of the same thing, right? No, I'm not saying that at all. I didn't. First of all, I didn't see the the match that you're referencing, so it's hard for me to comment on it. But if 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 it's anything close to what I picture based on your description, uh, no, I'm not. Saying, first of all, those guys aren't professionals. They're ju they're just a bunch of idiots that were probably you know drinking too much cheap beer and decided hey let's do this, so a completely different scenario, you know Hack Silver King, La Parka, 
you know, Fit Finley won the damn thing. He's one of the greatest professional wrestlers in the history of the sport, in my opinion, you know, uh, and one of the toughest human beings on the face of the earth, in my opinion. So, you know, these are all credible people here in WCW that participated in this thing. Not a bunch of, you know, fat-ass drunks that just were throwing themselves off a roof into a kiddie pool. Big difference. Yeah. This thing took, uh, <laughs> according to the Observer, cost a hundred grand to produce. I can't oh, be. Bullshit. I can't yeah, be right. Now, it, and nothing he writes is right, Conrad. It's been almost a year and a half we're coming down to. It, it, come on. No. How would he know? How would he know that? Nobody, I guarantee you, nobody in Turner Finance called him and told him that. He probably heard it from some <laughs> some enhancement talent that we hired locally, you know, who probably heard it in a bathroom. So, no, no, no. Uh, what's, uh, what's the reason you guys didn't do this again? I mean, it feels like it was a home run. No, it wasn't a home run. And look, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so great when you go oh, that, that hand painted saw blade meant for some meant something you bled for that. You earned it. Yeah. Well, that part is true, but that's not the same thing as a home run. Look, we were okay. Kidding aside. I'm trying to have some fun with this because there's not much else I can do with it. at this sure. point. I can't deny it happened. I can't pretend I wasn't there. You know, uh, I can't claim amnesia, so I'm trying to have fun with it. But yeah, you know, the hardcore title was something new. We were trying to establish it. Uh, we went to an extreme to do that. It was a unique idea. I mean, what else were we going to do? Have a bunch of fucking guys beating each other with goddamn cake pans in the middle of the ring? Sorry, seen that a million times by 1999. So we were looking for a different way to highlight the the unique nature of a hardcore match by being as unique as we possibly could. That's the real answer. What was worse in your opinion? The uh Chamber of Horrors where you guys electrocuted Abdul the Butcher. I didn't do that. That was not me. That was Dusty Rhodes, by the way. I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying it happened in WCW. All right. Okay. Or this well, just one. when you just when you say you guys, then that infers that I have somehow my fingerprints were on it. Well, I, I just want to make it clear it wasn't. Okay, my apologies. When WCW no. did the electrocution of Abdul the Butcher, what was worse, this or that? Mm, I would say the Abdullah uh, electrocution because at, at least here I go. I'm defending <laughs> something I don't even want to have to defend. For God's I, sake, I love this. You're you're just you're you're like you are worse than an attorney. Thank you, you really are because you. Cause you suck me in, you get me to let my guard down. I start feeling like we're going to have fun with something. And then you hit me with a left hook in the dark from out of nowhere. It just, it pisses me off when you get away with it. Cause I know it's coming and I try to defend against it and I can't stop it. But at least, Oh, this is going to sound horrible. I know I'm going to listen back to this. I'm going to God damn it. One night you say stop, but the electrocution of a dude. Right. <laughs> The electrocution of Abdullah was farcical. Nobody believed it was happening. There was no reality to it. It was just an over-the-top, crazy, storyline, wacky finish. That's it. Now, this hardcore match, by virtue of the injuries that you felt compelled to list, <laughs> rubbing my face... <laughs> 
was very credible and believable. Oh, it was very real. So therein lies the difference. I can't believe I defended that. I can't either. And, and I can't believe that a guy got 60 stitches and you're like, it, it was believable. Well, yeah, shit. Yeah, it was. Well, I didn't want him to get 60 stitches. I didn't say, I didn't tell those guys. First of all, I didn't, you know, I wasn't the agent for this damn thing. And, and if I was, I would have said, okay, I want you to go out. Let's see. You need 60 stitches. You need to break a leg. You need to get your face torn off. And uh, Hey, fit. Come over here. Do you mind? Eh, uh, how about losing an ear? No, work for McFoley. Come on, give it a try. I didn't do any of that. It's just, these guys put themselves out. They wanted that sheet metal saw blade. They wanted that. Chat me up. Um, it says Jimmy Hart's here trying to direct traffic. H who was the agent for this? I don't remember. I wish I did. Do you know who deserves the, the blame for this shit idea? Um, I mean, I'd be guessing. Let's just guess and pin it on somebody. This is the type of match Kevin Sullivan felt most comfortable with of, of all the people, you know, in, in the office at that point, I would, I'm just guessing if anybody raised their hand and said, I'll take this one, it would have been Kevin. I don't know that it was, but that'd be my guess. And then we could slam the motherfuckers on a car. They could go <laughs> through a goddamn windshield, Eric. It'll be great. Look, the guys in it were, you know. No, I, I, I wouldn't say that would be true for like LaParka and Silver King. I, and I don't know whether they love this kind of thing or not, but Steve, Pac certainly did. Steve Regal is in this. Ugh. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry, Steve, if you're listening, I, I should have apologized profusely when it happened, but I'll make up for it next time I see you. There you go. Let's get to the next match. I'll let you off the hook. The Jersey triad, uh, diamond Dallas page, bam, bam, Bigelow and Chris Canyon are going to retain the tag titles against Chris Benoit and Perry Saturn. So it's three on two in a tag match, but you know, whatever, I guess, uh, three and a half stars, probably the best match on the show. What say you? Yeah, I agree. It was a great match. Uh, sensibility or, 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 or logic aside it, from a work rate, uh, point of view and an excitement point of view, I'd say it was definitely the best match on the card. Um, but again, I, at best it's a, it's a great TV match. I can't Maybe believe this happened, but next up we've got a boxing match and Mills, oh. Mills lane is the referee. And if you're not familiar with boxing, Mills lane is probably the most famous boxing referee of all time. Uh, he, uh, had a television show, judge mills lane. He was, uh, memorialized forever in the MTV celebrity death match. I mean, everybody knows who mills lane is. And that profile was raised even further over the whole Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield ear biting situation. So we're going to go to Roddy Piper in a boxing match again, except in this time, it's not Mr. T it's buff Bagwell. And Meltzer would say this was bad, but it could have been worse. Actually, Piper did a very good job of doing worked boxing and Bagwell was also better than expected. Piper didn't even appear to tire at 48 years of age, even with those big gloves Bagwell tired, but not to the point he couldn't perform. And of course lane comes out rocking the uh, judge's robe and then takes it off to reveal the referee shirt, the pillows, uh, I mean, gloves are huge and, uh, yeah, 
it gets half a star. It's sort of, it, I don't know. I mean, I guess it seems like a good idea on paper, but the execution, maybe not so much. Uh, you can use your imagination. Judy's going to be involved. And we just mentioned the bit about Holyfield and Tyson. Well, Judy is going to bite Piper's ear. And I guess they had to do that since Mills Lane is here. And, uh, eventually Judy's going to chase Flair around the ring after the match. Make heads or tails of this one, buddy. Yeah. I mean, the best part of this was the interview that Mills Lane did with Mark Baden prior to the show. Um, because Mills, you know, he was in character. He, he, he took it seriously. And so did Mark. So that, that was the most interesting part of this whole setup to me was the interview that Mills Lane did with Mark Baden prior to the show. Once, and, and, and Roddy, you know, every time Roddy, I see Roddy's entrance, I always get goosebumps. Um, so that, that was great. When they introduced Judy, I was like, oh, please don't, no, stop, no, you know, because it just, it just took it down like 10 notches. Uh, uh, and then the, the match itself, you know, we talked about this when we covered uh, WWE's, I can't remember the name of the, the show that we covered last week, but um, bad boxing is bad boxing and it's never going to look good. You know, work boxing is like really, really bad comedy. It just doesn't work, and this just didn't work. It was entertaining, I guess. It was almost like a comedy spot. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got Randy Savage teaming with Sid Vicious, and they're going to take on Sid and Kevin Nash. But I do want to bring up controversy that came to light with Randy Savage on the way here. Uh, there's a little bit of heat because Randy Savage gets uh, carried away and, uh, slaps Tori Wilson and violently throws gorgeous George down. And, uh, apparently the executives at time Warner, the brass, so to speak, are there live at the Georgia dome and they are not happy. Uh, according to Meltzer, these antics were not laid out by the booking committee. It was not planned. Apparently Tori didn't know she was going to be slapped. Uh, Meltzer was sort of freestyle that. Savage and George probably knew what they were going to do, but they didn't smarten anybody else up. And there was tremendous heat on Savage to the point that they were all told to go home rather than appear on thunder. And, uh, it was a bad look, especially in this era where we're being very safe and very critical of what the competition's doing. And now we're portraying domestic violence, but we've still got an advertised main event. So we've got to deliver that. What can you tell us about the Savage controversy before we talk about the match? Uh, I think the way it was covered in that report was exaggerated. Not that it was not not that it wasn't true. I won't say it's accurate, but it, there was some truth to it. Uh, there was an issue, Turner, and and there had been multiple issues leading up to that. Not with Randy and and, and Gorgeous George and Tory, but you know across the board there was constantly standards and practices issues uh, that we were being challenged with. Uh, and, and trying to find our way and trying to find out what we could do and what we couldn't do was still delivering a product that the audience had become accustomed to. So, yeah, it, it was an issue. There was some there was some controversy. There was some conversation with standards and practices. And, you know, we addressed it the best we could. But it wasn't like, you know, nobody no, nobody reached for their, you know, termination papers. You know, nobody called their lawyers and, you know, 
claim breach of contract or anything like that. It didn't escalate that much. It was just an internal issue. Let's get to the main event. Uh, Michael Buffer is going to claim here that this is the first time in history that the WCW title has ever been put up for grabs in a tag team match. So it's a tag team match where whoever gets the pin is the champ. Figure that out. Let's, 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 let's let that one hang in the air for a minute. I know it sounds absolutely ridiculous because it is on, on the face of it. It's like, well, that makes no sense. There's no logic in that, which is true. <laughs> However, on the other side of that, as a storytelling device and a way to catapult into a new story, uh, a myriad of potential. So it, it, I didn't like it. I don't like it listening to it. I didn't really dig it watching it, but I understand why it was done. Let's just put it that way. Even though I, even though I think it was a wrong thing to do, sometimes you watch something and you know it's so wrong and you can't figure out why in the world somebody would do something so wrong. Like there's no possible reason anybody could have convinced themselves this made any kind of sense. This is kind of like that, only I understand why, particularly when you're fighting so hard to come up with story and you're, you know, you're, you're looking for a way to come up with lightning in the bottle in an angle that all of a sudden can make sense and you got to start somewhere. Now, now, you know, somebody's going to, you know, two guys are going to, somebody's going to lose that title and it may not be his fault. It may be because his partner um, didn't do what he was supposed to do or when he was supposed to do it, whatever. You can use your imagination. You can figure out how to book that match. But as bad as it was, illogical as it was in many respects, I at least understand why they did it. Well, let's tell you what's going down here. Um, Meltzer would say Sting got nominal crowd reaction. Nash got only slightly better and the fans were chanting for Goldberg. Uh, Gorgeous George is going to wander over into Nash's corner. Eventually you have an idea uh, what's going to happen here. Uh, George is going to get in the ring and give Nash a low blow, but her first low blow came nowhere close. So Nash doesn't sell it and she freezes. So he's standing there and waiting and she finally does another one. Uh, Sid then body slammed Nash, dropped him in the wrong position, making it even harder for Angle to hit the elbow for the pin, but he did. And then Nash and Sting shake hands after the show goes off the air in front of the crowd. So Sting is, uh, the, t- the tag team partner of Kevin Nash and, and they're, they're going to shake hands at least for the live crowd, but Randy Savage just beat Kevin Nash and he's your new world champion. And, uh, the next night in, uh, nitro and Jacksonville, there's about 8,000 fans, $123,000 gate. Savage is going to challenge anyone, but Nash for a title match. And Hogan comes out huge face pop and accepts. And then Savage says, oh, I meant anyone, but Nash or Hogan. And Gene says, oh, you can't go back on your word. So it, it, it built to something fun because in the main event, we've got Hogan beating Savage to win the world title. Sid does a run in Sid's pounding on Hogan. And then it's a revealed that it's a no DQ match. So sting comes in after Sid. It's just a huge smudge, but Nash is going to grab the mic, cut a promo on Hogan and challenge him for a title match at road wild. And we're off to the races that nitro, by the way, 
I uh, got a 3.45 rating raw got a 5.99. So overall that's the story of bash at the beach 99. What'd you think of the main event? Uh, would you have done anything differently with that? Yeah, I thought the main event was a mess, just a complete cluster. Um, the, the, the working chemistry between the people involved in, the, in that match just wasn't there. Uh, not to single out any one of them because it's it, it was a group effort. But, you know, one of the things I noticed, uh, and I, I'm not sure I noticed that first uh, low blow by Gorgeous George. There was one where she came up behind Kevin. I'm not sure if that's the one you were referring to when she kind of nutshotted him from behind. It was like the worst nutshot I've ever seen in my life. She actually looked like she tried to stick her thumb up his ass more than, than anything else. It was like she's from a distance and kind of just barely hit him. And, you know, he had to sell that. And it just looked, it just went, oh, I just, it was horrible. It was just, eh. Um, and that was just one thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just no way I can look. It just had no socially redeeming value whatsoever. Uh, what would I have done differently? Uh, I would have. I would have kept it to a one-on-one. I would have, I would have built a story that would have been a one-on-one kind of story, you know, in retrospect, kept all of the, the camouflage, the outside interference with people that really weren't capable of doing the job, kept that to a bare minimum, uh, or, or not at all. Um, and tried to tell a better story with two people and identify a, a personal issue to, to make it at least feel like it mattered. If you had to, uh, give this one a ranking. Where would this fall? Bash at the beach, 1999. Ooh, on a scale of one to 10. Yeah. Or, or we'll do the Meltzer thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Thumbs down. Yeah. 82% of the readers of the observer said the same thing. Thumbs down only 9.8% thumbs up 8% thumbs in the middle. Uh, best match. It's unanimous. It was Benoit and Saturn against the triad. The worst match also unanimous. Uh, Roddy Piper and Buff Bagwell. Uh, I, I didn't love this one and, uh, I'm sure you didn't even love revisiting it, but when this one's over, we've had so many great moments that we've celebrated with WCW. And I know that you had to just be high fives and beers all around for some of those shows, but probably not this one. What's the, what's the mood coming out of a pay-per-view like this? Uh, my mood was if I'm not wheels up by 1127, I'm going to be hot. <laughs> I, and I got out of town as quick as I could. Yeah, you know, look, everybody, the, you know, I think for the most part, when you come off of a pay per view like this, even when it's a bad one, yeah, there's enough adrenaline to get you through the night. You know, it it's not as it doesn't feel as bad when you're done as it probably should have. Um, but. I think in general, across the board, the tone leading up to this, prior to the pay-per-view and certainly after it, just it, everybody was frustrated. There was just, there was no, there was nothing that got people excited about anything at this point. And you still got the show, the show must go on. You still do it. Well, I've got something you can get excited about, and that's what we're doing next week here on the show. And I sent you a lineup once upon a time of uh, an anniversary uh, sort of, Hey, here's what, here's what I'd like to do in our upcoming shows. You want to take a guess what we're going to be doing next week? I, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> I like it. That it's always a surprise for you. Well, here we go next week. 
And, uh, I don't know that you're going to be super excited about this one, but maybe it's going to be something different. We're going to look at the invasion pay-per-view from 2001 and went down in the WWF. Of course, WCW is closed now by July, 2001, but the invasion is, is probably the most talked about angle in wrestling history. It had been fantasy booked by all the after mags for decades. And it's finally going to happen here. It's WWF versus WCW. What did they do? What could they have done? What might Eric have done differently? That's a home run fun kind of show. Don't you think Eric? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I didn't watch it. You know what I mean? It's not like, Oh, I remember watching that. I, this will be the, it's like, it'll, it's like, it'll, it'll be the first time it's ever happened when I watched it, at least for me, we're going to do it. I don't, I, I don't remember, you know, I didn't even talk to anybody about it. So this, this is really virgin territory for me. And I haven't been a virgin territory in a long time. Leave it alone. I'm, I'm, alone. Leaving, I'm leaving that one alone, but I'm not leaving that show alone next week. We're going to do a watch along with that. So if you haven't, don't go watch the show just yet. Uh, we want you to watch it with us for the very first time and get Eric's hot take on, uh, what he thinks about this invasion pay-per-view it did monster buys. Uh, but you know, was it exactly what it could have been? We'll leave that for Eric to decide, but I know there's some one thing I can do right now. That's going to excite you more than anything else. What? Let's play the Wrestle Rock Rumble. This is Ken Resnick, and I'm here to say we've got the greatest wrestlers in the AWA. But you're not here to listen to me mumble. Let's fill you in on the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Get on! Wrestle Rock, be there. With the Midnight Rockers, Sean and Marty. We love to wrestle. And we love to party. You don't have to work. We're not going to fumble. Because we'll, we'll be shaking to the, the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Ow! Rock. I'm the shit, and that's not funny. I got my army and lots of money. If Gunny in my way, I make him crumble. He be sorry. I did the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Wrestle Rock, be there. I'm Jerry Blackwell. I want to see. I want to get my hands on that pencil neck geek. Cause I watch the EDF fumble. I'm gonna make my splash in the Wrestle Rock Rumble. The A W A, you, me, and restaurant. I'm Greg Gagne, and I'm in a rave. I want Brody, and I want him in a cage. The high flying dropkick will make him seem double. I grind him up at the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Woo! Wrestle Rock. I'm Kurt Hennig and Big Scott Hall. As tag team champs, we'll take on them all. So bring on the long riders, those dirt ball dumbos. We'll smear those bushes. Do the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Uh. I've got a passion. I'll get the title back from the humanoid Hanson. I've got the brains, and I'm not humble. I'll take the belt back and do the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Wrestle Rock, April 20th, at the Dome. Wrestle Rock, 86, Beaver. I won't be through till I get done slapping around Scott in the suit. Gonna beat the ugly bartender into a bundle and laugh all the way doing Wrestle Rock Rumble. Ow! 
This game dark got a mouth that won't quit, but I'm Scott McGee and want to smack a little shit. And when I'm through, you won't be able to mumble. I'll be left alone doing the Rattle Rock Rumble. Yeah! Just one last word from the former champ, Vern, but give it a lot of thought to one more turn. There's some old scores that still give me trouble, and I'm starting to get the urge to do the Wrestle Rock Rumble. So there you have it, and now you know them. And on April 20th, it's at the Dome. So get your ticket to be under the bubble, because you two can be doing the Wrestle Rock Rumble. Do it! Uh. Wrestle Rock Rumble. Who booked this shit? John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.